0: Good morning again. We are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. We're at Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 27. Uh, Jesus is teaching today on lust and adultery and divorce. I realized halfway through writing this that tomorrow is Valentine's Day, so this was not intentional, not even intentional in light of Super Bowl commercials and all that kind of stuff. Matthew 5, starting at verse 27. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kind and your wise counsel to us in your word. We come to a topic that for many of us is deeply painful. Uh, We have been deeply wounded, some of us. Uh, We are deeply ashamed, some of us, of what we have done, things that have been done to us. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to hear your word this morning uh, with eyes that can understand it, but also a heart that receives it in your gracious and loving and kind spirit in which you attend it for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus began preaching that God's kingdom had arrived in him, he was in many ways preaching that he had come to bring people back to the future. Through Jesus... God is restoring His world. God is healing it in line with His original plans from the very beginning of His creating the entire universe. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is teaching us what life in God's kingdom should look like right now, but certainly will look like in the future when Jesus returns to heal the universe of all of its sickness. But there's a massive disconnect between the world as we now know it, even as Christians, and the world as it should be, the world as it will be under Jesus' rule. And so because of that massive disconnect, there are many parts of his Sermon on the Mount that sound fantastical. They sound impossible. They might even sound ridiculous. Today we have some of Jesus' teaching on sexuality. It too, Jesus is saying, must be brought back to the future under God's good and wise rule in his King Jesus. Now the Bible's uh, ethic of sexuality has always been pretty radical. It's always been otherworldly. It's always been something very different than what's going on in the world around those who have heard from God. Unlike Eastern religions that teach us that desire and physical pleasure and even marriage is something to be renounced. The Bible teaches that sex and marriage are good gifts from God, that they are to be embraced and enjoyed under His wise and His good guidance. And unlike patriarchal societies like the Roman world in which Jesus lived, uh, societies that have taught and do teach that women are something like their husband's property Uh, that women exist entirely for the male's own pleasure. The Bible has always taught that men and women bear equal dignity, equal rights before God and in marriage, and that men must love and cherish and serve their wives, that both husband and wife must be faithful to each other. The Bible has no tolerance for any idea that boys will be boys. And so the Bible's teaching on sexuality has always been something very different. It's always been something very different. But that's particularly the case in today's world. Our world has a view of sexuality that the world has never seen before. It's been largely severed from any kind of transcendent narrative, any kind of transcendent reality. Sexuality has been severed from God, severed from children, severed from the past, severed from the future, even more and more severed from an actual physical person in front of you and with you. But even when it includes two people physically together, uh, it has often been reduced to a bare act. A bare act between consenting adults who are exchanging and swapping, perhaps even taking and stealing the commodity of pleasure just in the moment. It's often been translated now into the central feature of personal freedom And fulfillment and expression. And so, what Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount sounds particularly bizarre in our world. It might even sound dangerous, hateful, bigoted, repressive. Many, many Christians, even today, have unconsciously absorbed the wider world's view and framework on fulfillment and expression and sexuality. And so, even for many Christians, this sounds ridiculous, it sounds impossible. It sounds dangerous. And yet, we need to remember as we dive into this that it really is good news. That Jesus wants what's good for us, that he knows what's good for us. In the ancient Roman world, this teaching about sexuality was truly revolutionary. It came like a hand grenade in the middle of a world of utter misery and oppression, particularly for women and children and slaves. In our world today, for all of our talk about progress, all of our talk about being on the right side of history, our pornographic, hookup, easy divorce culture has emotional and sexual and relational misery as far as the eye can see, particularly for the poor who bear the worst and heaviest consequences of the sexual revolution. Jesus' teaching is good news. It's good news for us. It's good news for me. It's good news for our world. But Jesus is giving us much, much more than bourgeois advice about how you should get married before you have kids and how you then should stay married and how you shouldn't cheat on your spouse. It's a lot more than that. As Jesus did last week with anger, Jesus is drilling down very deep into our hearts Jesus is bringing us back to the future of sexuality. He's calling all of us to a holistic life of purity and chastity. Whether you are 17 or 70, whether you are married or single, whether you have been divorced, whether you have been widowed, Jesus is giving us good news. He's calling us to a new way, a good way of life. We see it in in two chunks here. I'm bringing together his teaching on lust with his teaching on divorce. They're related, of course, First, in verses 27 to 30, when Jesus teaches us on lust, he's helping us to zoom in, I think. He's zooming us in on desire to see what it is. Zooming in on desire. It's similar to what he just has done with murder and anger, really coming from the same place in our hearts. And so he's now affirming God's original prohibition of adultery, but he's clarifying for us that this command has always been about the heart. Once again, he's speaking as God's authorized spokesman, God's authorized interpreter. He says, You have heard that it was said, and he quotes the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, and he, puts the, he words this very emphatically, he says, But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus is, once again, as he does over and over and over again, Jesus disarms our attempts to make excuses about ourselves in the face of what God wants from us. Jesus says, yeah, you should not cheat on your spouse. But at the same time, Jesus is saying that just because you haven't actually crossed that line doesn't mean that you can let your imagination and your fantasies and your desires run wherever you want. Jesus is not talking about noticing that somebody is beautiful or handsome. That's normal. That's natural. Jesus is talking about lust. He's talking about protracted desire to physically enjoy and use and devour somebody who is not your spouse. You might hear Jesus' warnings here about lust and think, what's the big deal? It's just in my head or it's just on my phone. But just like anger, Jesus is deadly serious here. Jesus offers a very serious warning about decisively dealing not only with adultery, but also with lust. He takes sin very seriously. Verse 29, he says, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. To make sure that we haven't missed the point, Jesus says pretty much the exact same thing again, except now he tells us to cut off a hand in case it's causing us to sin. Jesus is saying it's better to limp into heaven than to leap into hell. Now Jesus is not literally saying that you need to pluck out your eyeballs because at the end of the day, lust is really a problem of the heart. It's not a problem of the eyeball or the iPhone. But his point is that we should take sin, even a sin that is apparently harmless like lust, we should take it so seriously That we should be willing to make enormous and even very painful sacrifices in order to deal with it. Think about all the things that you use your hands and your eyes for every day. Think about how precious they are to you. Imagine how radical what Jesus is saying. He's saying that as precious as those things are, in reality, there's something even more precious. That holiness, integrity, purity, love, service, chastity. These things are so much more important than even your eyes and your hands. With discreet and easy access to pornography in our world, Jesus' warnings are perhaps more urgent than ever. Are you really willing, are we really willing to do what it takes to stop? Do we really need internet access at home? It sounds crazy. Many of us probably would rather give up our eyes than our internet. But we have to wonder, do we really need it? Is Instagram really a good place for me or my kids to be spending their time? Do my kids really need smartphones? Do they really need iPads? All of those things are really only the first steps in dealing with lust. Uh, I've I've done a lot of college ministry over the years, and I've I've worked with many young men in particular on this issue, and I've often told them that dealing with the the Internet access issues and the website issues is really the easiest part of it. It's not that hard to get rid of those things. Uh, It gets really hard when you're stuck with yourself, you're stuck with your own heart, your own patterns, your own desires, your own thoughts. And so even though these are the only the first steps in dealing with problems like this, we do need to be really careful that we don't just blow off what Jesus is saying, uh, that we don't just write them off as being unrealistic and ridiculous. The whole point is that even what we believe to be the most precious to us is not nearly as important as obedience to God. Now why is that? Why is obeying God so important? It's not only... Because lust trains us to selfishly devour and use other people as if they only existed for our own sakes. It's not only because pornography has all kinds of horrible effects on our brains and our relationships and our children. But most of all, Jesus is saying, it's because there's real eternal danger. Because it is profoundly destructive of our relationship with God because it deadens our attentiveness to him, our sensitivity to him. The worst thing about sexual sin is that it is fundamentally idolatrous. It's idolatry. It says to God, you are not enough. You're not generous enough. I know better than you what's good for me. Pleasure In the moment is better than joy in the life to come, we say to God. And so twice in a row, Jesus warns us that left unchecked, something as apparently harmless as lust is actually leading us to hell. There's real danger. But also, behind Jesus' warnings, don't forget that even His commanding us to do these things, implicit within that, there's also real hope for change. Jesus would not be saying these things if he did not think that we could actually do something about this. We really can change. God's Spirit really can transform us. Please seek help if you need it. Come talk to us. Come talk to me. I'd be happy to help you. And so Jesus is zooming in on desire. He doesn't want us to uh, squiggle away and to think that we're fine uh, if we have what looks on the outside like a, a normal, functional marriage or sexual life. Jesus zooms in to show us that lust is a serious violation of God's good and wise standards for our world and for our relationships, not least our relationship with him. And so because of that, because Jesus is showing us with these almost these x-ray glasses of what's really going on in our hearts, because we're really seeing it for what it is, we need to deal with it for what it really is. Uh, even with great painful sacrifice, St. Augustine commenting on these verses said, there is need for heroic courage here. There's need for heroic courage. Uh, We need to be reminded that a relationship with God, uh, attentiveness to God, a life with Him, a life of integrity before Him, that is something that is far more precious, far more valuable, far more pleasurable than anything else that this world has to offer. And so Jesus zooms in on desire when He teaches us on lust, but now I think He also zooms out on devotion when He teaches us about divorce, about marriage. Look at verses 31 and 32. How are Jesus' disciples supposed to approach marriage? Uh, These couple of verses leave us with many questions. Uh, Jesus is going to have much more to say about marriage. He'll teach about divorce with uh, more clarity uh, later on in Matthew chapter 19. The rest of the New Testament will help us to flesh out some of this with more detail, with answers to more questions we might have. Um, But as we've been saying through the Sermon on the Mount, we need to be careful that we don't qualify Jesus' teaching so much that we ignore what he's actually saying to us. The basic point that Jesus is making, as shocking and as difficult as it was then and now, is that Jesus' disciples must earnestly strive for lifelong marital love and faithfulness. They must strive for lifelong love and faithfulness in their marriages. It's a back-to-the-future journey to God's original plan for marriage in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. He's alluding to a provision in the Old Testament law, it's in Deuteronomy chapter 24, where God is regulating divorce as a painful reality that's already happening, but where God is not commanding or blessing divorce. The original provision was a way of protecting a divorced woman in particular because she was more vulnerable to being overlooked and taken advantage of once a husband had left her. Moses commanded that if her husband was going to divorce her, she had to receive this legal document that said that she really was divorced and therefore, by implication, was therefore free and to remarry, could show that I really can be remarried instead of being left aside uh, under questionable circumstances. There was a great debate among the rabbis in Jesus' time about what counted as a valid reason for divorce. Uh, There were basically two views on it. One of the schools said that just about anything was a good reason to divorce your wife, even if she burned your dinner. The other side said that no, sexual infidelity was pretty much the only reason to divorce your wife because that kind of sin is so serious that it effectively dissolves the marriage. And so a legal divorce then is something like a recognition of something that's already fallen apart. Jesus is more or less, not totally, Jesus never merely sides with one camp or jumps into one box, but Jesus is more or less siding with this latter, stricter camp, even as he also, of course, speaks for himself as God's authorized interpreter of Scripture. And so he says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman Uh, By implication, Jesus is saying, i.e., a woman who is not divorced for a valid reason uh, commits adultery. We'll see later uh, that everything Jesus says about a man divorcing his wife also applies to a woman divorcing her husband, which was a very radical thing for Jesus to be teaching and permitting in the ancient world. And again, like we said, this is not the only thing that the Bible has to say about divorce. All of the Bible is Jesus' word, All of the New Testament is his authorized speech through his apostles. The apostle Paul, speaking for God, says that if a spouse says, I'm done with the marriage and walks out on it, in the Roman world, literally all you had to do to get divorced was leave the house. And Paul says, if a spouse does that, if they won't change, if they won't repent, then a Christian may divorce and may remarry with a totally clear conscience. Uh, There are, of course, many ways that a spouse can abandon their spouse Uh, They can abandon their marriage even if they technically remain under the same roof. I also want to remind us that divorce is not the unforgivable sin. A lot of Christian churches today kind of treat it that way and sometimes explicitly more or less say that. Uh, We also need to acknowledge that there are many divorces that uh, may have originally happened for non-biblical reasons, and yet, even so, there are a lot of reasons that they cannot be reversed. You cannot take it back for lots of different reasons. Uh, And we need to just acknowledge that and admit that. Uh, Paul acknowledges that in 1 Corinthians 7. And so just like under the Old Testament, today even for Christians under the New Testament, divorce remains uh, a painful reality that is sometimes permissible, uh, even as it's always very sad, even as there is always some kind of sin involved. Uh, It's not the unforgivable sin. But again, with all of those qualifications aside, we need to hear Jesus' main point. We need to hear Jesus' main point. Jesus' main point is that marriage is a lifelong commitment to one other person. It is a lifelong commitment for helping each other, for loving each other, for caring for each other. It's a lifelong commitment to raise whatever children God might bring out of your love as it is expressed and deepened through physical union. And in some cases, serious sin may mean it's permissible to divorce. But for most of us, most of the time, our calling in marriage is to persevere in love and in service and in sacrifice. Even if you've been married for a very long time, even if you've gotten pretty tired of your spouse, even if you think they can never change and they never will change. And so one question, of course, for us today, particularly if you're married, What would it look like for you this week to take small steps of love, small steps of mercy and compassion toward your spouse, whatever they're like, however they might respond? Jesus is saying, God will strengthen you and equip you to love your spouse, no matter what they're like. Marriage, for many of us, is very painful, very difficult, very lonely. Some of the loneliest people I know are married. And yet, Jesus calls and empowers us to love our spouses, even an unlovely spouse. And sometimes, loving your spouse means saying no. Sometimes, loving your spouse means filing church discipline charges. Sometimes, loving your spouse means calling the police. A good marriage is a wonderful blessing from God. A bad marriage can be a terribly heavy cross to bear. It's one of the worst. And yet, as always... God loves to meet His people in the wilderness. God loves to shape us in the image of His Son, Jesus, who has already borne the heaviest cross before us. And so in this radical, back-to-the-future teaching on God's good plan for sexuality, we need to really understand that Jesus is not just saying, No! I know on the surface it's a lot of no's, but every time the Bible says no, there's also a yes behind it. Jesus is not just saying, don't lust, don't cheat, don't get divorced. He is saying those things, but he's also saying yes. He's most deeply saying yes. He's saying yes to love for other people. He's saying yes to treating other people as brothers and sisters to be cared for rather than used. And that's true whether you're married or not. It's true uh, whether you have been divorced or widowed. Chastity is not just something for people who are not yet sexually active. Chastity, uh, Christians have always understood, is something that all of us are called to practice. Purity of heart, sexual integrity is something that God strengthens all of us to live in, no matter what our situation is. And so Jesus is saying yes, but that's not all he's saying yes to. Most of all, Jesus, in his teaching on sexuality, is saying yes to life with God. Jesus is saying yes to life with God. For sexuality, the Bible is very clear, has always been one of God's most powerful and vivid ways of showing us what he's like, what God desires for his relationship with his beloved people. It's why it's so destructive. It's why it's so uniquely destructive when it goes wrong. Did you notice that when Erica read earlier from 1 Corinthians 6, uh, Paul did not say, don't sleep with prostitutes because it's exploitative, because you'll get a disease. Those are good reasons not to do it. Jesus, Paul says, don't sleep with prostitutes because your body is for the Lord. Your body is for the Lord. He says, you're not your own. He says, your body, even from a sexual angle, is there for serving God, for knowing God, for revealing God to the world. And so, if you're a Christian this morning, this means that you've been united to Jesus. Paul said, you have become one spirit with him. You've been united to him in a way that is analogous to the union of marriage. Later on, Paul will say the same thing in another one of his letters. He'll say that the physical and emotional and relational union of marriage is a great mystery that refers to Christ and the church. And so, the other centered love-first nature of the sexuality of Jesus' kingdom with all of its difficult and painful ramifications for the real horrors of lust, the real tragedies of divorce, this other-centered love-first sexuality flows from and points to God's own sacrificial love for us in Jesus. The yes of horizontal chastity, and faithfulness to each other is really most deeply the yes of love for God and love from God. He is perfectly faithful. He will never abandon you. He will never walk out on you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your perfect others-centered love first, love for us, your perfect faithfulness to us in all things, How easily we amuse ourselves with other things. We chase after other gods and lovers. And yet you persist in mercy and in grace and in peace. Lord, help us, heal us, cleanse us and wash us from all of our shame. uh, All of the things that have uh, been done to us, the things we have done to others. uh, We carry the scars of those things our whole lives all the way to death. And yet we look forward in hope to the resurrection knowing that our bodies are really for you that you will raise us up in perfect wholeness and integrity. Help us, Father, even in this life, to begin to live in light of that as much as we're able, in the joy that comes from knowing how faithful you are to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.